we are going to continue in our study in the book of Titus. So if you have your Bible with you or whatever you use to read the Scripture, uh, we already have read the Scripture together, but I invite you to read along with me. We will be focusing today, as you see in your outline, on um, verses 5 and 6. We're really not finished with this subject of regeneration and today renewal and how that all fits together. And Paul makes it very clear of what that relationship should be. And I trust that as I've studied this, I can hopefully make clear what Paul has said uh, that he makes abundantly clear. So we're going to back up and read um, 1 through 7. I think this needs to be, uh, we need to have a context for it. And then we will pray and jump into our study today of particularly verses 5 and 6. What is regeneration and why do we need it? So, beginning with verse 1, chapter 3 of Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Almighty God, our, our Father, what a great hope has been laid out to us that we have been singing about today. What a great hope has been laid out because of you sending your son Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And by living his perfect life, we can have imputed to us his very righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that in the time that remains and leading up to the partaking of the Lord's Supper together, I pray that you would help us to Go as deep into the truths of this passage as we need to get. And Lord, to pull out of it the meaning, not only for our own lives, but for the lives of those with whom we will have contact even this next week. This is all about the gospel, Lord. And so I pray for wisdom and insight as I share, and I pray for a receptive heart and mind on the part of those who will be receiving the word and help us all to respond by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. A 
What is the most important thing about you? What is it? Is it your status? Is it your popularity? Is it your intelligence? Is it your financial success? Is it your accomplishments? I could say all of those things and even more, and people would point to all of those things as being very, very important about them. But I think that you'll know the answer to that in the context of the words that I just read and the words that we talked about last week. In fact, it is the thrust every Sunday when we get together. The most important thing about you today and tomorrow and for eternity is your salvation. Are you born again? Now, the message of of Titus, and we read this a few moments ago, I try to slow down when I know that I'm going to be emphasizing certain words within a passage of Scripture, but we just read this. As believers growing out of and as a part of our salvation, it's all tied together, we are to be those who are ready for every good work. If you go back, we've already talked about this. We didn't read it today, but back in chapter 2, verse 14, we have almost the same idea. We are to be a purified people for God's own possession, not only ready for every good work, but zealous for those good works. But how do we get there? If you're a true believer in Christ, your desire is to be a person who does good works for the name of the Lord Jesus. But how do we get there from where we were? Now, going back, and we read it just a few moments ago, and and I, I am so appreciative that Paul, the Apostle Paul, includes himself in this, and we all need to, no matter how we look back and whether or not we see ourselves as those who at one time were in the gutter or we were pretty good or whatever we might see in the past. But this is the way Paul says it, we were, and then he gives this list. And by the way, I reminded you last week that there are other lists of sin in the Bible. But here he says we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray, deceived and led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And then add to that, we were detestable, unfit for every good work. That's how we were. And so I just posed the question, how do we get to being a people who were unfit? By the way, if you look up that word, I suggest that you do this sometimes. It just, it makes for a good study. I wondered what that word unfit, obviously it means it doesn't fit. But if you look that up, that is exactly the same word used in Romans 128. And if you go back to Romans, you can write that down and look it up. And Romans 1 is just a 
spiral, a downward spiral of sin, of rejecting the clear revelation of God, worshiping what his, He has created. It starts with worshiping our, ourselves, self-love, and it finally gets down to what Paul calls a reprobate mind. And that's at the end of the chapter. That's what it means to be unfit for every good work. It's also used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 when he's talking about those who've rejected the faith. Here he uses the word castaway. Hebrews 6, rejected. So this is a strong word. It's laying the foundation for some of the things that we're going to remind ourselves of in just a few minutes. But that's what we were. Paul as religious as he was, included himself in that. We once were all of these things, detestable, unfit for any good work. And then it says those marvelous words that we have been singing out uh, about throughout the morning. Look down at your notes. It says, He saved us. We kind of make a big deal about this don't we? Shouldn't we? Now, I'm going to belabor the point here to make a point. Jesus didn't come to make your life better or easier. In fact, some of you would say that once you started following Christ, things got tough. He didn't come for that. He came to save you from your sins. I want you to notice it again. He saved us. We didn't save us. You didn't save yourself. He saved us. He saved you. Salvation is received. It's not achieved. And I shared this verse with you last week. Sometimes people will come into our church and they'll say, well, uh, what kind of church are you? I hope I can say we're a good church. I think by God's grace, we, we have seen Him build, develop a solid foundation, a, a church where people are, are developed to delight in God and to declare His glory from our neighborhoods to the nations. But we hammer on this over and over again, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so sometimes I will answer that question, well, we are affiliated with this particular denomination called Southern Baptist. I don't know if you've heard of that. But primarily, I would call myself Reformed. And that elicits an interesting response. Well, what do you mean by that? And I'll launch into maybe, depending on the time and the situation, a little discussion of how the Reformers came out of the Catholic Church and they brought back some of these bedrock doctrines that you will see on the banners around our auditorium that we hold to. But this is the bottom line. Here's, here's what I ought to do when I'm asked that from now on. Maybe you ought to do this too. What kind of church is heritage? Well, we're, a, we're Reformed. Well, what do you mean by that? Here's the sum of our Reformed theology. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Here's the outworking of that. Here's what that means for you the next time you're witnessing. I hope you are witnessing, or you seek to on a regular basis. I've had this happen where you come to the end of your your encounter, you're sharing with someone how they can believe in Jesus and be saved. Have you ever had anybody to say, you know, that all sounds really good, but I think I'll wait? Not right now, they will say. And you can use this. You can use Jonah 2.9 to challenge them to think deeply about their rejection because they have just rejected the gospel. They've just rejected Jesus. And again, I'll put it back up. If we really do believe that salvation belongs, listen to this, to God and not to them, then you can say something lovingly to them like this. You say you want to wait, but unfortunately, at the point where you think you're ready to trust the Lord, let me let you in on a secret, you can't. Now, can you guess, and I've said this before, can you guess what the response is to that? Well, yeah, I can, just not now. No, you, you don't understand. You won't right now because you can't. Well, yeah, I can. Well, then do it. I don't want to. My friend, and, and you know what? I could be talking to somebody in that very boat right now. And you've been in church and you've heard the gospel, maybe you're parents or grandparents have told you the gospel and you're a good person and you go to church or maybe you don't go to church or whatever the case may be, but you know that you have not, you have not been saved and you're waiting. I don't exactly know what you're waiting for, but I just know that there are a lot of people who've heard and they say they're waiting. And that is a very dangerous place to be in. And I'll just tell you today what I was just talking about. You won't because you can't. Why? Because salvation does not belong to you. That's the fallacy of a lot of our evangelism. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And really, you know what you're trying to do. You know, I know what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get them to the place where they will say, much like the people did responding to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, then what do I do? And at that point, you can share with them what you can't do, God has done, by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. You cry out to Him. If you do not feel that you have the ability to repent and believe, you cry out to Him and ask Him for those grace gifts so that you can do it. You know, I, I, I really think that in a lot of situations, now not every, because there, there's going to be a place where people are just blind. But people really have not made, been made to feel desperate in their lostness. 
I heard a, a preacher one time use this illustration, and I've, I've loved it. I don't think I've used it very much, but he used it as, a, as an illustration of getting someone into a sense of desperation. Let's say that you're with your friends, and you're in a house, and you're playing cards. Now, I know you're good Baptists, and you don't play cards or dance or well, anyway, that's old school. You're reformed, so you can play cards, okay? Yeah. Jan said, and we can dance, but she's a former Methodist, so. When they baptized her, they got all of her under except for her feet. So, so you're in this house, you're playing cards, and... So all of a sudden, and the, the door is locked, okay, because you don't want anybody coming in to, to, to mess with you. you got a really good game going, and you, the, the, the money's on the table, okay? This is just an illustration, okay? And all of a sudden, somebody says, what, what, what's that I smell? Do you smell smoke? Yeah, yeah, we smell smoke. And so there, there is smoke starting to fill the room. But you've got a big, huge pile of money on the table, and you look over in the door, and there's the key. It's on the inside. And you say, hey, guys, I'm just smelling the smoke. We don't see the fire yet, so let's go ahead and finish this hand. Let's just wait, because there's the key. And at any time we want, we can get up after we've finished our hand, and we'll run over and unlock the door and get out and get to safety. And this pastor said, let's change that illustration to a biblical illustration. You're with your friends, you're playing card, cards, big pile of money on the table, and you begin to smell smoke. But the difference is that the key to the locked door is on the outside. You don't have the key. Someone else does. And so when you start smelling smoke, even before you see the flames, there might be an additional sense of urgency. Hey, we better do something. And you go over and you start pounding on the door. Please, somebody unlock the door. Let me out. And in a spiritual sense, some of you are in that room and you've said, I'll wait. I got, I got something going on. I smell the smoke, but I don't see the flames yet. Friend, they are there. And if you had this sense that salvation is of the Lord, it's not of you, it might give you a sense of urgency to begin pounding on the door of heaven and saying what so many throughout the ages have said, Lord, save me. And you know what the Bible promises? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When Jan and I were in seminary and we worked for an organization called Young Life, 
it was a good organization. They had a little bit different understanding. I'd grown up in a in a Baptist church. Oh my goodness! And so I, first couple of times I spoke at a Young Life club, I talked about this. I talked about being saved. And so the leader of the whole, you know, the 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 area came and listened for a couple of weeks, and, and then he said, let's get together, let's have coffee, let's talk about uh, what, what, you're, what you're teaching or preaching or sharing. It was never preaching, it was just sharing, okay, what you're sharing with these kids. And here's what he said, don't use the word saved. I said, why? He said, because it's a churchy word. We're trying to reach these kids, and a lot of them are unchurched, and so don't use the word saved. And, and I, we, we just talked about it for a little bit, and I couldn't really understand why a word that is used more than 110 times in 103 verses in the New Testament would be a wrong word to use. A word that means to rescue from danger, to rescue from, from destruction, to keep safe. A word that describes Christianity. If you are a Christian, Christianity is a uniquely a saving religion. It's our central theme. It's why Jesus came to the earth. to save sinners. And an old Puritan, John Ryland, said it like this. He, he, he harped over and over again about the three R's. We're ruined by sin, we're redeemed by Christ, and we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so out of this passage, Paul is addressing two equal but opposite errors that will hurt us if we don't understand it. Good works help to save us. He's going to address that in just a moment. The other side of it is good works don't matter. So let's look at the next phrase. It's on your outline. God saves sinners. He saves us. Get this down, not because of works done in righteousness, that we have done, but according to His own grace. So, what motivates, if salvation belongs to the Lord, what motivates God to save? Something in us? No, something in Him. Something in Him called His mercy. I read an article this past week in studying for this, and it came from a an evangelical pastor who was railing against the, the, the doctrine, the teaching of, of sola fide. Right there. We're saved through faith alone, and he was railing against that. Now, I, in reading the article, I understand what he was saying. He's trying to get at this, this, this thought that Christians have that once I am saved, that I can just live any way I want, and that's not true. Good works do matter. But in order to correct that problem, he stated an opposite problem, that we are saved by grace 
plus the works that we do afterwards. And to me, I'm telling you, that creates a bigger problem, I think, in the minds of a lot of people, a lot of Christians. I mean, after all, how good is good enough to help God save me? Especially when, when the Bible says this about all of our righteous works. They're like filthy garments, polluted garments that all are under sin. No one does good, not even one. And this takes out the thing of, hey, I'll, I'll be saved if, if I can just change my ways. A lot of people go to church and they'll hear a sermon about sin and about the, the consequences of sin. Well, I'll just change my ways. Well, it doesn't matter because all of your good works will not add up to anything that will approve you before God. Here's another one. We didn't look at this one last week, but we will this week. The, the, the inability to change your nature. For those of you who say, well, I'll just turn over a new leaf. I'll do better. You can't. You can't any more than an Ethiopian changing the color of his skin or a leopard changing his spots because it's impossible because you have a nature that needs from the inside out to be born again. Now, let me give you two words that explain this, what this preacher just said, then I'm going to illustrate. In your salvation, do you subscribe to monergism or to synergism? Boy, I'm getting a lot of blank. You say, oh, come on, preacher. Yeah, you know, don't give us those big words. Well, this, this is important because you, you subscribe to one or the other in your salvation. Monergism. One is working. Synergism. You work and cooperate with another. Let me give you a couple of illustrations that might help you. And children, these will help you. Adults, I hope they will also help you. Are you saved the cat way or are you saved the monkey way? Some of you are thinking he's lost his mind. He's not wearing his glasses. That's, that's, the, that's the problem. Monergism. Have you ever seen a, a lion or a cat carry its young? And here's a little cub, a little kitten with its eyes not even open that can't do anything. And what does the mama cat do if she wants to deliver that little kitten from a place that's unsafe? What does she do? Reaches down, bites ever so gently, and picks that cat up by the nape of his or her neck and place her in a place or place him in a place of safety. That's monergism. Synergism is the monkey way. How does a mama monkey get her little one 
from point A to point B. Well, she gets up close and the baby monkey reaches out and latches on. But do you know every once in a while that baby can lose its grip and fall off? That's the problem with the monkey way of salvation. We are saved by grace through faith alone. No works. No works could ever accumulate enough to warrant our acceptance by God. So how are we saved? If we're not saved by works, how does it happen? Look at the next phrase, by the washing of regeneration. This is radically changed. We are regenerated to live again. That's what that means, to be born again. Now, Jesus had this conversation with a very religious man. He was a scholar in religious things. His name was Nicodemus. You remember that story? And in that encounter, Jesus is explaining to him, this is how you are saved. Truly, truly. This means, listen up. I say to you, unless one is regenerated, Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We add James 1.18 to that of his own will. He brought us forth. Now, it says regeneration, but watch this. It says the washing of regeneration. And that word washing is a noun, not a verb. You could take it like it's the washing that regenerates, Or probably what it more likely means is the regeneration, that being born again, that also in an instant washes you. Now, according, look look down, the washing of regeneration, I want you to look at the next phrase, because we're going to get to this in a minute, the renewal, but who does the regenerating? The Holy Spirit does the regenerating. Here's the picture. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit took His Word that He had spoken into existence through the prophets and the apostles. He took this Word and He caused this miracle inside of you, in your heart, and you were regenerated. You were born again. And he even uses for Nicodemus, Nicodemus was blown out of the water. He did not get it. He was lost. Of course he didn't get it. He said, well, whoa, 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 whoa. He was thinking physically, how can I do this all over again? How can I be placed into my mother's womb? How can I get this all over again? And Jesus said, no, no, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, now watch what he's going to do. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, some would say this means water baptism. In the context, it doesn't even come close. Nicodemus in the previous verse talking about the physical. So this has to do with the physical. The water that that happens during the act of physical birth, but you must be born again by the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. You got to be here. And you got to be born of the Spirit. And then he wraps it up by saying, that which is born of the Spirit 
of the of the of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit so you've got a picture of a baby who's born into the world how much did the baby do to affect its own birth how much cooperation or ephesians chapter 2 that we looked at last week How much does a dead person like Lazarus have to do with being called out of the tomb? How much cooperation? Peter reminds us you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and the abiding Word of God, and this is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Now, let me share with you a story where Jesus applies this to his disciples. I hope this will be helpful to you. In John chapter 13, Jesus did something that caught his disciples way off guard. Do you remember that? They were gathering together for the the last supper, and Jesus gets up from the table. He takes off his outer garments. He wraps a towel around him, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, this is a story that, that, that relates to Philippians 2, the humiliation of Christ and, and the command to love one another. But included in this story is a very, very important thing that, that we often overlook. And it's the conversation that he has when he comes to Peter. Peter says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says to Peter, uh, Peter, if I don't, now watch this, the washing of regeneration. Peter, if I don't give you a bath, you're not a part of me. Okay, are are you tracking? This is very important. That word washing means bath. So, Peter, you've got to be born again to be a part of of the body of Christ. You don't get there just because you're a church member or, or anything else. If I don't wash you, if I don't bathe you by the water of regeneration, the Holy Spirit, you have no share of me. Why? Because the one who bathed does not need to wash again. Except for what? Except for what? Except for his feet. But he is completely clean. Your born-again experience, listen to me, Christian, is a once-for-all, never-repeated, perfectly complete thing that God does for you at a point in time. But that's where the next phrase that Paul gives so wisely, we are saved. He saved us by the washing, by the bathing of regeneration, and on an ongoing basis by the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. So, regeneration and renewal are closely connected, but they're not the same. 
They are a part of salvation. I think sometimes we need to be more precise when we say, I am saved. It's a great word, but we need to understand that I have been justified, part of salvation. Now, I am being renewed or sanctified or made like Christ or made holy, however you want to say it, that too is a part of our salvation. So regeneration is that one-time cleansing or bathing, being born again, never to be repeated, never to be lost, never to be improved upon. We are justified. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as well as our sins forgiven. Now, basically what this is saying and what Paul is saying here about regeneration and renewal, let me put it like this. You only have to take a bath once. Now, some of you kids will really get into that. Next time mom says, hey, it's time for a bath. Pastor Marty said, I only have to take a bath once, and I did that last week. It's spiritually. You only have to bathe once. But every day, if you're like me, you need to wash up. In fact, Jesus went on to say this. We'll go back to this again. If I don't bathe you, you have no part of me. But, but Peter, your feet stink. You've already been bathed, but you've been walking around in this world, and I, I need to wash you up every day. Renewal is also something of the Holy Spirit, but it is a lifelong activity. It starts at the moment of regeneration, and it continues. By the way, if we I kind of belabored this, regeneration happens. It's monergistic. Ding, ding, ding. What do you remember? The cat way. Regeneration happens without your cooperation. You got that? Renewal must have your cooperation. Every day, it's a lifelong activity. And, And so avoid saying, let go and let God like it's all Him. I have nothing to do with it. That's ignoring the work of the Holy Spirit and your own work of yielding yourself, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following after Jesus. We are working out in renewing what God has worked in. I tried to come up with another illustration to help you understand this. I bounced this off Jan. She kind of helped me out with with it a little bit. But when our kids were, were little, I, you guys that have younger kids, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Saturday night, because you weren't going to wait until Sunday, they all got baths, right? Okay, they all got baths. But from the time they woke up, and, and just depending on what they were into, uh, but I'm talking about Sunday morning. They'd already had a bath, and you're getting ready to go to church, but inevitably one of them would come in, and he'd eaten breakfast, food all over. I'm ready. Or maybe in the car you would notice that one of them had been outside, and there was dirt. I, does anybody else, anybody else have that happen with your kids? Okay. 
So what do you do? Now, here's what I remember. Now, guys, I don't think your parents ever said this on you. My mother would give me a spit bath. Anybody know what a spit bath is? It it was on the way. Now, today, and Jen corrected me. She said, honey, we use wet wipes. Okay? Back then, there were no wet wipes. And so here's what my mom did. Yeah. (laughs) And and, And what did the kids do? I don't know that any one of them just, oh, please, do me a spit bath. (laughs) See, the process of sanctification is sometimes the Lord has to do a lot of rubbing, a lot of washing to get that dirt off. Now, does that mean we've lost our salvation? Does that mean we're not regenerated? No, we've already taken a bath. But boy, do I sure need my feet cleaned daily, minute by minute. Here's what, it, here's what it means. Don't be conformed. This is renewal. Don't be conformed with the world, but be renewed. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's how it needs to look. One last illustration, then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Some of you may notice, I've had a couple of comments that I am not wearing my goggles today. Anybody notice? Okay. I, I never said a word about them in, in the pulpit. That was not a fashion statement. Although I got a lot of comments that I looked like everything from, I don't know, Bono to Urkel to... Special ops. I like that one the best. Okay. I had cataracts. And uh, th- that means the lens in my eye was defective. In fact, it had turned brown. It colored everything that I, everything that I saw. I didn't realize it because it happened over a period of time, but I didn't realize how dingy everything really looked. And, and I got to the place where I couldn't really, I mean, driving at night was a real challenge because everything just looked dim and blurry and all the rest of that. And so I had surgery where they took out the old cataract and put a brand new lens in my eye. It's amazing. First surgery I had, and then they followed it up a couple of days later with the next I looked down at the sheet of paper and I went, oh my goodness, that paper is white. Oh no, it's dingy brown. No, it's white. And then they, because it was a special procedure, now this is interesting, the lens were already in my eye, but I went back to have the prescription changed because I still couldn't see real clearly. And it wasn't just one, it was coupled to three, and then finally they locked it in, and I had to wear the protective goggles. And I thought, Lord, th- this is what happens when, when a person's regenerated. 
All those treatments I had on that new lens wouldn't have worked on the cataracts. They're gone. I had to have new lenses implanted. And then the tweaking process, that's regeneration. Then the tweaking process, the renewal, happened. Not once, but over. Now, obviously, this, the, the illustration breaks down. But do you see what I'm talking about? The lens were put into place, and they don't change. It's impossible to renew the old cataracts as far as I know. I don't care how often you try to do a treatment. And that's the way it is with your heart, my friend. You must be born again. Cleaning up the old heart won't do. You must come to a place where you see the reality of your sin before a holy God. And if you're convicted, that's a good sign that God has begun that work of regeneration in you. And you repent. You turn away from trusting yourself and self-effort. And you turn by faith to Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. That He died to forgive us of our sin debt. Wipe it out completely. But He lived so that we could be clothed with His righteousness. And so we could be with Him forever. And just, just like the, the new lens, the light shines so much brighter. And it will for you. If you open your heart and you are born again, and Christian, if you will continue to receive the work of sanctification, of cleansing, of washing your feet day by day to become more like Christ until He finally comes in glory to finish once and for all what He has started. Father, I thank You for the words of the Apostle Paul. I pray that these words would go deep into our hearts, would be understandable, They will be for those who, whose eyes are opened. I pray that the new birth would even happen this morning. I pray that people would, Lord, quit saying, I'll wait. That could be an older person. It could be a younger person. And they'd quit saying, I, I, I wait. Maybe next week. Maybe next week. And today would be the day of being born again person yielding, giving up their sin, giving up their fighting against you and playing like they're their own God, and yielding and believing that Jesus is the only Savior, Christ alone. I pray that would happen today. And for those of us who know you, Lord, as we now get ready to partake of uh, the Lord's Supper, communion. He shared uh, some bread and some wine with his disciples on that last evening before his crucifixion. And it was, it was so beautifully symbolic. 
Father, your word tells us that we are to examine ourselves as we take of the Lord's Supper. Not to prove any worthiness, because we're not worthy. It's because of Jesus that we obey the command and take of the Lord's Supper. Father, if there is anything in us hurtful that we have done so that we can have our feet washed and uh, take the Lord's Supper with a clear mind, clear conscience. So I pray that during these moments as we now take these elements and think about them deeply and take them into our bodies, that it would be a symbol of how we have taken the Lord Jesus into our hearts and lives. And so I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.